welcome to this Federalist Society Faculty Book Podcast discussing Professor David Post's new book, In Search of Jefferson's Moose, Notes on the State of Cyberspace. Thank you for tuning in. In Search of Jefferson's Moose explores the new world of cyberspace, what it is, how it works, and what laws it should have. Post compares Thomas Jefferson's thoughts on the new world and notes on the state of Virginia to the Internet, drawing out the similarities and differences between the two new worlds, and presents Jefferson's ideal, small self-governing groups loosely joined together and forming groups of increasingly large size as a model for self-government in cyberspace. David Post, a professor of law at Temple University Beasley School of Law, is joined by critical commenter Eugene Bullock, the Gary T. Schwartz Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law, to discuss the book. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Post. So I wrote this book that has kind of an odd premise. It is an attempt to redo Jefferson's Notes on the State of Virginia, a book that Jefferson had published in the 1780s, for cyberspace, for the net, to sort of work through Jefferson's scheme for what he thought was important about the natural and social and political history of Virginia. Virginia in those days being a much, much larger place than it is today, but sort of the eastern part of the United States. And to sort of try to see what he was getting at, what kinds of questions he was asking, and then to turn around and ask those questions about the net and to see where it leads. And it led me to some interesting places, I think changed at least my way of thinking about internet law and regulation and the sorts of things that I do and that Eugene does from time to time, those sorts of questions. So that's kind of what it is. I often say to people, you know, I wish I could describe the book in five sentences, but if I could do it in five sentences, I wouldn't have spent 10, 12 years writing this book and I wouldn't have taken 215 pages sort of describe a process and a way of thinking about things that I think is useful and helpful and illuminating, but that is for readers to judge for themselves. And David, I'm glad you put in the 10 or 12 years. It's a fascinating book. I very much enjoyed reading it. Let me ask you one question. So Jefferson wrote notes on the state of Virginia, and at that point the state was a state, a sense of governed place with a government that controls what goes on there obviously imperfectly. The writ of the state probably did not run too far into the mountains and sometimes not even so much into the more settled areas. No government has perfect control over anything, much less the relatively small and in many ways libertarian government of the Commonwealth of Virginia. But the internet is a different kind of place, if it's a place at all. It's a place where there are, in fact, if anything, too many different governments out there controlling what's going on, in some measure controlling what's going on in ways that are parallel to national boundaries. So, for example, blocking access or trying to block access, even if imperfectly, to certain websites when the access is happening from a country. And in other ways, in fact, they reach out considerably beyond their borders or whatever the equivalent of their borders is online. So do you want to talk a little bit about this difference between Virginia, the Commonwealth, the government, not quite the nation, but the country, and cyberspace. 
I have one sort of funny and relatively trivial comment, and then I'll try to get to the substance of the question. The funny, trivial comment is that it is funny that you interpret the word state of Virginia. Note that notes on the state of Virginia, the word state is ambiguous, and I'm not even sure it could mean the status. Notes on the state of the forest in that sense. So I'm not even sure, to be quite honest, which of the two senses Jefferson meant it. And maybe both. I'm not the greatest of Jefferson scholars, to be sure, but I've looked at a fair bit of stuff, and I've never seen reference to, in his writings or in the writings of others, to this ambiguity. But taking the larger question, one of the things I like about Notes on the State of Virginia, Jefferson's book, and one thing that I think is characteristically Jeffersonian, is the notion that you start at the bottom, if you will. Notes on the State of Virginia is organized, and I try to replicate that in a sense in the book, from the physical reality of the place. Jefferson goes through the rivers and where the mountains are and where the veins of gold and lead are to be found. And chapter after chapter, it's actually sort of boring and excruciating to read at some points. But page after page after page about this, and he builds up sort of to society. And society kind of emerges out of this. And then you ask questions about how society is organized. All that is by way of prelude, in a sense, to saying you're right. It is a question here about how this place, if it is a place, this Internet is both similar to and different from the places that we ordinarily are used to and which our sort of legal regime is built around. We haven't seen anything like this in some ways before, but in some ways it has placeness and is just about people communicating and has some similarities, many similarities to sort of the non-internet world. That's a very tough boundary to navigate. I think Jefferson helps one start at first principles. If you take seriously that all people are created equal, if we're talking about internet governance, and you're right, with this very complicated system with all the countries you know, reaching out and grabbing and punishing and trying to enforce their laws. We start from the principle that whoever makes the rules for this place has to be responsive equally to all of the people who are there. That's a pretty radical formulation of it, but it gives you a way to comment normatively about this patchwork problem that's out there on the net. That's not a good solution to the Internet's governance problem is to have 180 different entities reaching out where they can to try to control what's going on. I don't think that's a coherent way to bring law to this platform, place, medium. So it's interesting that you say that because many people have long said that it's not a good solution to governance problem of the physical world generally to have um, 180-odd or more governments out there to be sure, in the physical world, some of the regulations can operate within their boundaries or largely within their boundaries. But at the same time, for decades now, in some respects centuries, it's been clear that often the effects of what one state does go outside of its boundaries. One obvious example being wars, another right. being environmental consequences of what people do, which often don't respect the national borders, another being trade rules, technological development the infringement of patents and copyrights in a foreign country and the like. 
But, you know, we haven't solved that problem in the physical world, except to say that, well, there are these governments and nobody really particularly wants to give them up. And the best you can do is have some treaties that try to harmonize things in certain areas, generally unsuccessfully. Is that what we're kind of stuck with in cyberspace as well, that everybody would like, in a sense, one rule, but nobody agrees on what that rule is or who's going to make the rule? So the consequence is that there are all of these rules set by all of these governments. Obviously, the more powerful governments are more effective at setting these rules, and they're sometimes obeyed and sometimes not, and everybody just muddles through. It's a great question. And to be in a position of trying to predict the future necessarily, I don't know what the future brings anymore than anyone else does, so whether we're stuck with it or not, I, I think it, you, know, you can turn that around and you can say, look, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to think about uh, new forms of governance. That's another thing I like about Jefferson and the founding generation, if you will, of which he was a part, that they kind of seize the opportunity to really rethink things from the ground up and to build something a series of institutional arrangements and new forms of power centers that operated at scale, that scaled across the continental United States. That was an enormous problem. Nobody thought it could be done, but in fact, they sort of solved that problem. That was not solely Jefferson's doing by any means, but he was a participant in that. But you're right. These problems, the sort of interstate, intercountry jurisdictional, the battles and boundaries and reaching out has been a problem for hundreds of years, and we sort of muddle through with a lot of people scratching their heads and law professors wondering whether we could do better than we do, but we muddle through. The net is kind of an opportunity to scale it up, I think, at a higher level, starting on a blank slate, if you will, that maybe we can't conjure into being the right institutions at a global level. I'm not sure I know what they would look like. A lot of people have a lot of different ideas about that. But it does seem to me that the Jeffersonian example, if you will, is comforting to me in terms of saying, don't just immediately assume that there is no way to solve this problem, which I think a lot of people do. It's just intractable. Countries will do what they do, and it'll be sort of a mess, and it's all about sort of power, and we can't bring any sort of coherence to this. I'm not prepared to give up. I know many people think I should have given up on this 15 years ago, but I'm not prepared to give up on that. I think it really is an opportunity to rethink it. It's a global place. Everybody on the planet sort of has access to this. That's what makes it powerful, of course. Rulemaking? Poof, tough a tough issue, but I think that is an issue that's back on the table now, if it ever went away. This Internet's going to be with us for a long time, and this is just the beginning of some sort of process that's going to produce something in you know, 100 years. That's also what you get by spending time with Jefferson and his cronies, is, is sort of the ability to, a little bit, to sort of look forward as they were doing. Think about, what's this going to look like in 100 years? So, David, I think this is an eminently important and interesting project, and I think you've made a lot of great suggestions towards it, but let me try to approach things from a slightly different perspective. So, as I understand the American revolutionary and constitution-making experience, is it was this mixture of revolution and very profound conservatism that, indeed, they replaced monarchy with republic, but 
at the same time, and they did it at each state level before they did it at the federal level, at the same time, it's remarkable just how much they preserved, often exactly the same internal governmental structure, just right. without uh, answering to the king and the parliament. And then when they put together the federal government, it was on top of this infrastructure of pre-existing state governments, pre-existing common law rules. In fact, the English common law, even though it was now the common law of a foreign nation, was absorbed into American law because it's also our law. So in many ways it was conservative. It was also, as I think the framers sometimes pointed out, it was also when we, there was really something really new, which is the federal government. It was a government for 13 states that were in many ways very similar. Surely they were different in many ways as well. There were different flavors of Christianity. Obviously there was a big gulf even then with regard to slavery. There were big economic divisions. But still, the notion that to somebody in Delaware that they might be governed by people from New York and Pennsylvania and Virginia, and to be sure, Delaware would have its representation, in fact, disproportionate representation to its population in the Senate, but it was clear that it wouldn't have its way most of the time. That was something that they were willing to accept, in part because they fought a revolutionary war as Americans, and there was this emerging notion that they are Americans, though to be sure, much more than today, also citizens of each individual state. I'm pretty sure that most Americans would not want to be ruled by the Chinese, and especially if one of the houses of the legislature had four times as many representatives from China as from America, as, in fact, they would, under population-based representation. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't even want to be ruled by Indians, even though Indian government is in many ways much more similar than ours, much less the Iranians, the Saudis, and the Russians. And we wouldn't want to be ruled even in part by them. Now, of course, many smaller countries have no choice but to be ruled by the Americans and the Europeans and the Chinese and the Russians in some measure because they don't have the power to resist. But even they don't seem, there doesn't seem to be that much of a clamor for world government or even world internet government from any of those sources. So what's your vision for how we can have a new scheme for the internet given that the variety of culture, of religion, of language, of political structures, attitudes towards freedom of speech, attitudes towards religious freedom, is just so vast throughout the physical world that corresponds to the Internet and throughout the Internet itself. Boy, that's a really hard and interesting question. Let me try to unravel a little bit of my take on that. First of all, you're right to talk about the combination of the sort of the radical with the conservative was precisely what made the American Revolution really work as well as it did. Jefferson alone is not enough. What made the process so extraordinary is that you had these articulations. You had Jefferson and Hamilton. You had an opposition. You had tension and balance between very different views of what the nation should be, and somehow it sort of found that sweet spot in the middle. The Internet is a place in the sense that there are and can be rules that are enforced Internet-wide. There already are, certainly in the, in the technical infrastructure of the net, there are rules you have to obey if you want to communicate on the Internet. You have to have an IP address, and if you have a name that has to be in the right format and in the right databases and all that. Those are rules that are Internet-wide. Who makes those kinds of Internet-wide rules going forward if what you're saying is the existing states of the world 
have to play in that sandbox, I think my answer is, yeah, you're right, they do. And of course, this summer where we read through the Federalist Papers, now that I've finished Jefferson, I'm on to Madison and Hamilton. Um, Let's not forget Jay. I know, yeah, I think we can actually forget Jay. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> but you realize in reading that how at least, I mean, a lot of it is rhetoric and you don't know what their true views are, but how they were not big fans of actually keeping the states. They thought the states were actually going to be a big problem for the federal government going forward. But they do recognize that both as a political reality and that they could turn the states to some advantage. That is, they could use the states as part of the balancing mechanism that made the whole thing work. And I think so. something like that is certainly plausible, it seems to me, in the Internet age. I don't think the states have to disappear. I'm uncomfortable, for example, about, and I think everybody should be uncomfortable about, things like the UN, the International Telecommunications Union. They're constantly making noise, more so recently, about involving themselves more actively in Internet quote, regulation, unquote, in sort of setting rulemaking on the net. And I think that makes me uncomfortable. So there are the existing states. It's just like the founding problem in a way, that if all you have is a league of these states getting together and making policy, I don't think that is consistent with the notion that everybody should have an equal voice. It wasn't in 1791, and it isn't in 2012. And there are lots of other reasons to think that's not the right institution that's going to make rules in an equitable fashion. If it is counterpoised with something else, if there's some other way in which the voices of the people of the world can be brought to bear on that, I'm more comfortable with leaving them around, if you will. They can be turned. We're not going to get rid of the 180 sovereign states, but that does not mean that they as entities get to decide the future of the Internet. I think that would be a terrible mistake. I think that would be squandering an opportunity. So that's a partial answer or response. Your point about the diversity of everything that we're talking about here, religion and attitude and language and all that in this place. If you have any good ideas about that, let me know. I persist in thinking it is a failure of imagination that we can't envision what it would mean to have a truly global institution because we're just too different. There is a global identity. Maybe this is the opportunity 300 years from now, people are going to think about a global identity different than they do today. I'm pretty sure about that. So let's start thinking about it. Well, I think that it was hard enough back then to try to anticipate. It was. 300 years from now. Today, with things moving even more quickly, it's harder still. So let me push a little bit on this question about equal voice. I certainly agree it's great to think about the future, even the far future. I think it's a lot harder to make plans for a couple of hundred years out now than it was back then, and it was pretty hard back then as well. But still, we should certainly be thinking ahead. At the same time, in the present, I'm wondering about this question of equal voice. And I think it's, in a sense, kind of central to question of new visions of governance, just as it was back then, of course. And what troubles me is I'm not sure that I, as an American, want the average Chinese person to have an equal voice with me. 
either in governing what goes on on the Internet in America or what goes on in the world at large. That I think the average Chinese person is probably at bottom as decent as the average American and as flawed as the average American. But as best I can tell, the culture of many foreign countries, as perhaps as influenced by and filtered through their governments, it's a culture that's not as conducive to Internet freedom as ours is. And not that ours is perfect by any means, but it's probably better than theirs from my perspective. So then the question is, do we want to try to have a system in which... Well, that, let, me, let, me, let me take a crack at that. That's position not sure I've heard articulated quite like that before, actually. It seems to me you're not taking issue, I don't think, with the principle of equal voice, because I don't know what are the principle you can substitute for it. Well, I am taking issue of, of, of equal voice. One way to ask the question, in a sense, is to ask, are you more comfortable if, let's say, whatever institution we're talking about that reflects equal voice is checked in what it can do. It can only do certain things, a very narrow range of things. You object to the basic idea that everyone is created equal. I find the notion that everyone is created equal at some abstract level. I'm not fine with the notion that everybody has equal right to have a share in governance over all of the world's territory or over all of the Internet's territory, such as it is. So you're taking a position much like those who would have said the states are actually a bulwark against the oppression that is going to come from this higher-level institution, right? Your position is parallel to that. I'm not saying that that makes it right or wrong. This is a different situation, but just in terms of sort of contextualizing it, putting it into its frame, that's what I hear you to be making an argument that is analogous, closely analogous to those who would have said, and many did say, that the existing states will, keeping them as coherent entities, will protect us from the crazy things that higher level institution is going to try to impose upon us. I think yes and no. Let me offer what might be a friendly amendment or maybe not friendly amendment, although said in a friendly spirit. I think that divided the world into three groups. One group is the citizens of a particular state that should be the ones that have the primary authority over governance in that state. A second group is the other citizens of the United States of America, to whom the citizens of each state delegate certain kinds of powers out of extreme pressing necessity. They felt they absolutely had to delegate those powers to the citizens of the other states, so that they accepted that, yes, the citizens of Virginia would be in some measure governed by the citizens of Massachusetts. The third category, which occupied the overwhelming majority of the world's population, was people outside of the United States who had Everybody no authority else. under the Constitution to govern what goes on in Virginia, though, of course, the framers, being a worldly people, recognized that foreigners would have influence, and then they tried to set up bulwarks against the influence of foreigners, but the chief bulwark wasn't, let's have a special institution through which the interests of foreigners are filtered in a certain way. It's, we want to have a powerful federal government, among other things, so it could resist foreigners, and in part, so it could deal in a win-win way with foreigners. 
So that's what I'm thinking with regard to the Internet, too. I could actually see us surrendering some of our current de facto power of control over the Internet to some other countries through various kinds of treaties in certain ways, in certain limited ways. But I wouldn't say, and I think the framers wouldn't say, that because people in foreign countries are created equal to us, they should have any voice in our councils in a highly formal way, and certainly not an equal voice. I think what I'm asking you to do is to take the framing discussion and kick it up one level because the internet kind of demands that we do that. The framing discussion being the one that took an existing patchwork of states and said, we're going to create an institution that allows people in one state a voice in what happens in the other. For limited purposes, and we're going to build in, we hope, sufficient checks to keep this monster in place, but that's what we're doing. And now I think the net poses the scale problem once again, which is to say, okay, now we have 180 states and we have this place that seems to cut across all of them and in which each have a stake and calls upon us, if you will, to come up with some coherent framework for thinking about rulemaking and all that, how do we do what they did back then, you know, create an institution or a set of institutions framework for saying, okay, with respect to certain things, I think the framers would be comfortable with this notion, actually. With respect to certain things, the guy in China and I have an equal voice. There's no, no other principle I can think of by which I should have more say over that, unless you don't want this to be a global place. I wonder why that's so. For example, for the decades that we've had of very broad world trade, and of course there were centuries before that of a great deal of an important world trade, but let's say the last several decades where world trade has been especially important, there have been often ad hoc institutional arrangements that have been very important in liberalizing trade. None of them have given anything like proportional representation based on population, nor do I think it would be wise to do that. I think the alternative to equal voice is for people in each country to try to do the best they can for themselves and for their ideologies. And that's an imperfect solution, but I think it's the best solution there is until we really are saying we're ready to cede a great deal of control to the, after all, 95% of the world's population that lives outside of our borders. And I'm not sure we should be prepared to do that. I'll tell you, by the way, one day, I am sure, the highly disproportionate amount of American power that there is in the world will recede. Uh, it's in some measure receding. It's inevitable, just as the rest of the world is catching up. But at some point, it may be that we, perhaps kind of like the European states recently found themselves in, which led them to cede a lot of their sovereignty, not the rest of the world, but their fellow nations of Europe, will find that we need to set up this kind of international structure because our power can no longer be thrown around as effectively as it can now. But as we know, I think, from the history of the Internet, past dependence is very important. And what happens in the first several decades of a technology ends up being very important. So I think that so long as the Internet is still in its infancy, I'd rather that the governance structure of the Internet be disproportionately influenced by America, in considerable measure by Europe as well, 
rather than have a system which, in principle, or maybe even in practice, might give the 95% of the world that's outside of America, say 90% of the governance share, even over a small portion of that, but in a way that I'm pretty sure that governance will not be used in ways that are conducive to technological development, to liberty and the like, just judging by how those countries tend to behave in the world today. Yeah, but let me just point out that you are talking about the countries as actors in this drama. The countries. We don't like how, and we don't, and you and I, we certainly share that. There are a lot of countries out there whose policies on this, but, but those are the countries. They do not reflect the views of the individuals in those countries. And what we need to do if we are to govern this place intelligently is to find a way to give the people of those countries a voice. I guess what I'm missing from the contrary position is the underlying principle. I mean, you, you favor the substantive outcome of youth policy because it is generally speech-friendly, among other things, among many other things. But it seems to me that that's not a governance principle. You're making me think, perhaps I need to do a better job of persuading you and others, and maybe myself, that in fact... We need to do anything. The muddle through position is that, in fact, the substantive outcome is better if we, we don't think in terms of alternative institutional arrangements, but we muddle through because muddling through has done well thus far and will continue to do so. And I guess that would lead me to a different conversation perhaps about the threats to the structure. I mean, everything you say is right about we wake up in a year and the International Telecommunications Union has in fact asserted more power and then it's like a violation of our international trade agreements if we don't do uh, abide by the rules of the International Telecommunications Union which are made by all of these countries whose policies you don't like and neither do I then maybe we had an alternative system to propose. What you're raising is a very serious point. And I think always, when it comes to ceding sovereignty, which is a fancy pants way of saying ceding the raw power to control what goes on in your country and in some measure to control what goes on in the rest of the world, we need to get the upsides of ceding that sovereignty and the downsides. I think what's interesting about the founding generation is they recognized that the upsides of ceding sovereignty to a central government were vast, or put another way, the downsides of maintaining the system as it went on were vast. That it was understood that the Articles of Confederation was basically collapsing, causing tremendous tension between the states and causing, causing a fear, as, the, as they said, that all that they had fought for, all the independence that they had from foreign nations that they had fought for in the Revolutionary War would be lost because each of the states alone wouldn't be strong enough to resist the Englands and Frances of the world. So interestingly, what they did is they ceded sovereignty to a federal American government, in large part precisely mm -hmm. because they wanted to preserve themselves against foreign governments. So they felt it absolutely necessary then to do this, and they saw the risks, risks which in fact eventually materialized. It took 150-some years, but all of the concerns of the anti-federalists, including of Jefferson, that a too powerful federal government would intrude into what many at the time thought of state matters, they ultimately materialized. I think the framers created a system that worked very well. It's hard to expect it to work as planned for more than 100 years. 
But still, they looked at the benefits and the right. costs, and they concluded the benefits exceed the costs. I'm not sure we're at this right now. I mean, I think if there is a crisis coming up in which really some sort of not just kind of ad hoc arrangements like we have today for international cooperation, but uh, broad arrangements are necessary, then in that case that might be worth doing. I think, by the way, that was in a sense what was done with the United Nations. There's a sense that after two international conflagrations of the magnitude of World War I and World War II, after the invention of the nuclear bomb, it was necessary. I think many people felt it was absolutely necessary to have some sort of system in place to help diminish those risks. Not clear that it worked, but at least, at least I understand why it was, it was a self-pressing need. And it was incidentally a system which ended up getting an extraordinary limited amount of power at the international level. But I'm not sure that right now we're at a position where we ought to be ceding some of our sovereignty over the Internet. I'm not sure that the pluses of that outweigh the minuses, or that the minuses of muddling through outweigh the substantial pluses, I think, of muddling through in the system as it is yeah, now. Fair, it fair, seems fair to have done very well, right? It's created this Internet over the span, as the Internet as we know it is less than 20 years old, and it managed to succeed beyond, I think, its designer's wildest dreams, managed to succeed without much Internet world governance. Listen, I won't allow you to twist me <laughs> into being some sort of a weird world government proponent and Jefferson would turn over his grave. Yeah, I never thought you, of you this way. You're absolutely right. The Internet has governance. That's part of the message. It is being, quote, governed, and it has been governed since it's... So, I mean, there are rules on the net, and they are made in this mostly in this very extraordinarily decentralized manner by these floating committees uh, who circulate their proposals, the IETF, and all the rest. And nothing makes a Jeffersonian's heart beat faster than considering that, that, that that's how this extraordinary thing was built without any sort of central control mechanism and all the rest. What fair comment to say that that has worked very well and it has managed to bring this platform to the globe and that if there's no reason to do anything different, then we should not do anything different. I'm with you on that. And I guess the question comes is, when will we recognize the crisis if it comes? And what will it look like? And I don't have good answers to that. But this is a very controversial and valuable world platform, and we know that the bad guys, however you want to define the bad guys, are looking for ways to have more of an influence over its development. And I want to be prepared for that eventuality because I think it can be strangled. Again, federal papers, you know, begin with this long discussion of why we're in a crisis, why we have to do something. And rhetorically, that's very effective. I'm not sure if you're saying you're not persuaded that we're there yet with respect to net governance. I think that's a fair. I'm not entirely sure that I am persuaded that we are there yet. But one of the things about crises is that when they come, there's not a lot of time for sitting around and thinking about how to respond. So let's prepare for that one because it has to come. You know it's going to come. Maybe I shouldn't say that with such certainty, but it is surely likely to come. This is a new platform that has all sorts of threats to all sorts of entrenched interests around the globe, political, economic, and otherwise, and keeping it open and relatively open and relatively free is not in the interests of many powerful actors. 
Um, so that governance is a is a shield, can be a shield against bad things happening. It can also be a tool of oppression. That's why they're hard. <laughs> they're hard questions, governance questions. It can be a shield against bad things happening like the ITE taking it over. I don't know exactly how that would work or could work, but we, they think it might work. I'm nervous about that. Thank you for listening to this Faculty Book Podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.